Hey, what up? It's Louis G, your PA announcer for your Los Angeles Chargers. Don't let family, friends, or business associates coming to town make you miss the big game. Treat them to an unforgettable Chargers game day experience at SoFi Stadium with the single game suite rental. Visit chargersuites.com to learn more about the suite experiences. I'm Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. It's no secret that Donald Trump is a racist. The word is so overused, it's such a disgrace. And I can tell you, I'm the least racist person there is in the world. As I said in last episode's Mea Culpa, it's probably the one authentic core belief he possesses that's not based in cynicism or convenience. The man wasn't pro-life until he needed the support of evangelicals, but he has always hated black people. A well-educated black, has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white. I know this because he told me his views on race countless times over the years I served him. I'm not guessing or transferring the overt racism of his fanatic white supremacist following upon him. This is simply what the man believes. In my book, Disloyal, I list some of his countless diatribes. How African-Americans were stupid and not his people. How they willingly live in filth. How countries run by black people with shitholes and fucking toilets. And finally, how all this colored his view on President Obama. The man is simply an evil and disgusting racist. How he reacts to what's happening today with Breonna Taylor or the national conversation in general should be an indication of where his heart lies. His racism is pure and real, inculcated to him by his own father and shrewdly wielded with coded racial terms and gestures, all to whip up his base of racist fanatics into a frenzy. The president is using a common talking point from white supremacist communities. A damning Washington Post story just released chronicles his views on race and his history of racism as well, featuring statements from scores of current and former administration officials. It also shares an anecdote from Unhinged, the best-selling book written by my next guest, Amarosa Manigault Newman. In it, she describes being enlisted in a desperate hunt by Hope Hicks and Sarah Sanders to find the existence of an apprentice tape where the president utters the N-word. He's incompetent. He doesn't know what's going on. He's racist. He says the N-word. He says, he says, you're fuckable, right into camera, to the, to the camera operators. And they're like, whoa. The tape was never recovered, but it shows the extent to which even those in his inner circle must contend with his racism. Amorosa herself referred to Trump as a racist, misogynist, and bigot. Prior to this, though, she was just another acolyte, like myself, enthralled with Donald J. Trump. From her presence on the first season of The Apprentice on forward, he loomed larger than life for her and gave Amorosa access to a world of celebrity and power. She joined the Trump campaign in July of 2016, where it was announced at the Republican National Convention that she was to become the director of African-American Outreach. After the election, she officially joined the White House as special assistant to the president and director of communications for the Office of Special Liaisons. Her tenure proved rocky, and she resigned a year later at the behest of incoming chief of staff John Kelly. Amorosa, what's going on? I just saw on the news that you're thinking about leaving. What happened? General Kelly came to me and said that you guys wanted me to leave. No, nobody even told me about it. 
I didn't know that. In August of 2018, she released her book, Unhinged, which recounted her turbulent time in the White House and her own reckoning with the evil that defines Donald J. Trump. Let's go now to that conversation. How you doing, Amorosa? <laughs> Hi, Michael. How are you? Uh, well, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. You know, a lot of things been happening since I've been released from prison. <laughs> I now have the number one New York Times bestseller. You know what it's like to be on the bestsellers list. Yours was um, unhinged. Yeah, it's nice to be on top, right? It's, it's, <laughs> number one is it's, good. It's nice to be recognized. <laughs> it, that, that it definitely yeah. is. So Amorosa, I want to start off by talking to you about 2004. And that's when we first met, when you were on the first um, season of The Apprentice. Well, you're not going to remember this. I actually... I remember seeing you actually while we were taping. I was thinking about this, which the taping was, wasn't that in the fall? You started in 2004, 2003. No, I actually started in 2007, but I was around because I was doing some stuff for him. Um, so the answer is yeah. Uh. We became much, <laughs> much closer, I think, in the seventh season. Yeah, that, yeah, was, your, that, that, was, your, season, that was the return yeah. of Amorosa. I can't believe, first of all, um, I, I have and love your beautiful wife. I know we're going to talk about your amazing number one bestseller in my book and all that, but I, I have to take a moment to just say that you have a phenomenal wife who is so kind, who's generous. And I, I really want to make sure that the world knows that you have someone that's behind you that is just stellar. Yeah, it's the one thing I do have to say that I'm certainly blessed. Um, my wife has just been a trooper through all of this and, and Samantha yeah. and my son, Jake, um, the, the same. I mean, people don't realize yeah. how hard it is on the family. They, you know, they think it's just mm-hmm. incredibly hard on me as the inmate. But no, it's really tough on the family. Um, so tell me about two thousand and four. Let's go right into. Let's go right into it. Two thousand and four was like having a, a hurricane hit your life. <laughs> you know, um, two thousand and three. We taped it in the fall, so there was a bit of a break before the show aired, and so we went back to our regular lives. And um, just, I just really wasn't prepared for what happened. Even when the promos start running, so many people just start to kind of contact you. They want to know what, what the show is about. And everybody was enthralled with Donald Trump. And so 2004 really changed my life. And um, it hasn't been the same since then because um, The Apprentice was just a phenom. So you'll remember that season, it was Kwame versus Bill Rancic for the finals, correct? I remember. (laughs) We all know that Bill Rancic was the winner. Did you ever see any sort of animus by the president, uh, Mr. Trump at the time, um, as against Kwame or against anyone of color at the the time of The Apprentice? You know, I catch a lot of flack because I I just, I had no idea. All the stuff that you've shared, that you disclose, um, what producers have disclosed from behind the scenes. I had no idea that that was going on. I didn't see him openly being hostile towards uh, Kwame or towards myself, obviously. Um, and so some of the... He was enthralled with you because you were a ratings hit, right? I mean, you were par and parcel one of the reasons why The Apprentice's ratings were so high. Well, well thank you. <laughs> well, you're very, well, you're very welcome, <laughs> but, but, Yeah. Now, in my book, I do, I do disclose some things that just kind of rock my head. Yeah, and I and uh, I've always found it to be interesting. Years after, when we were talking about Bill Rancic and the job that he did, uh, or job he supposedly was doing in terms of building 
the Trump Hotel and Tower in Chicago when the question of Kwame, a Harvard graduate and really just a, you know, a solid, a solid individual, that there was no way that he was going to have a black fag work for him was virtually the, the words that came out of Mr. Trump's mouth. And I'm just curious, you never, you never saw that during that season? No, because we, I mean, as we all know, the Donald Trump that was kind of in front of the world presented and packaged with a bow on it um, in the marketing of The Apprentice was completely different than the, the insight that you had. You had very unique access to him at that time that we just, we didn't know. And I have to tell you that it was painful reading that, reading about that. And just knowing how close I thought I was to Donald Trump and just coming to realize that it was just, it was just all a facade. It wasn't real. It was very painful. Your book was painful for me. Just so you know. It was it painful was for me writing. <laughs> it was painful for me writing it as well. You know, it, it really was. It's, it's not easy to write um, memoirs and it's not easy to expose yourself. And you really have to let it all out when you're doing it because the reader can easily see through the bullshit. In 2016, you joined the Trump campaign as its director of African-American outreach. You think Trump at that time was trying to use you as a way of silencing the claims about him being a racist? Well, first of all, let's rewind, because you were very instrumental to me being a part oh, of Oh, I didn't campaign. really want to take the let's credit for it, but all right, I will. <laughs> let's rewind to December of 2015. I think it was like November, December. And um, the, the whole meeting of these African-American ministers, remember that was in 2015. And I remember talking to you and I, I just remember you saying, oh, this is going to be great. You got to come join. And you were just really encouraging me to uh, be a part of this campaign. And, and I mean, even before that, I think a couple of months before that, you had gotten me even on the phone with Corey, who just, you know, you had your opinion about Corey. Yeah. I, I, he's, I, as, as everybody knows, I'm not a fan of Corey Lewandowski. Personally, I think he's a piece of shit. And let me be clear, you consistently not a fan because I remember in um, the fall of 2015 when I would have a conversation with you, you'd be like, talk to him, but he's an asshole, but just talk to him. We'll, we'll do, we just have to deal with it, but we'll get past it kind of thing. And it was it was just so interesting because everything that you predicted has kind of come true. But I'm um, just refocusing. You kind of pulled all these key players into the campaign. I was one of them. And you put me on the phone with the campaign manager. You put me on the phone with Donald. You put me on with Glasner and all these folks so that we could actually get the African-American operation going. You were key to that and instrumental in, in, in the formulation of probably the most important um, constituency group for Donald Trump, which was NDC. So, yes. And Amorosa is referring to the National Diversity Coalition, which I founded and at that yes. time with uh, a pastor out of Cleveland, Ohio, whose name shall not be mentioned. <laughs> uh, he's really turned out to be an ass himself. But I did. I, I asked you, and you were kind enough to join it, because you'll remember I had said to you that while watching his rallies, they look like Klan meetings, that there's not a person of color, there's not a person that's not white bread in any of these rallies. And I said, Mr. Trump, there's no way that you're going to be able to win if in fact you don't start pulling in the minority communities, I mean, if you and if you do win, you have to be a president to everyone, not just to this this white base. And we were in your office uh, once when um, I remember Daryl was in your office. I was sitting in your office, and and you were expounding on what 
you essentially wanted uh, NDC to be about. And in fact, I think you had kind of mentioned a broader name and, um, and, and or Daryl mentioned a broader name and you kind of focused it in. You wanted to make sure that it remained a focus of African-American. And then we kind of built out on the, the other diverse groups that we added. But I remember sitting in your office so very clearly as if it was today and um, that pivotal meeting happening. But um, the earlier part of 2016 was pretty insane when the debate started and just the craziness ensued. And one by one, all of the opponents were kind of dropping like flies. And uh, around that time, you were very optimistic. You're like, wait a minute, we can actually pull this off, right? And I was yeah. like, either Mike was a really, really good marketing guy, or he really believes we can win. What an interesting journey to go from you know, at 2015, those initial... Right, and do you remember the one where we brought in the great legendary Jim Brown with his Can program? Uh, you were really helpful I with me that. Um, in that. And yeah. remember, we met up in Washington in order to help to foster that. I mean, that was, that was interesting yes. because Jim Brown had reached out to me and he had said, look, I'm Jim Brown. I'm the former football player. I said, wow, what an honor. And he said to me, well, the honor would be if you'd be kind enough to try to get me a meeting with Donald Trump, mm -hmm. because I've tried under the Obama administration four times. And it's a tremendous program, the American program. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what? Give me a minute. Now, of course, knowing how to play Trump, I went in and I said, you know, Mr. Trump, I just got off the phone with the legendary Jim Brown. And he's been trying to reach President Obama um, each and every year in order to foster a program that's really helpful to the minority community, specifically the African-American communities. So he goes, wait, Obama wouldn't take his meeting? So I said, no, he wouldn't. Four times he's turned him down. <laughs> he goes, when can we get it done? I said, well, we can have him here in two days. He goes, let's get it done. So he didn't really care about the American program. It was simply because Barack Obama said that he, because yeah. I told him that he, Obama had met with him, was he willing to actually advance these conversations? I also want to remind you of your speech in Cleveland. Do you, do you remember the meeting at the church and you got up and gave that incredible speech? Sure. And uh, D Donald was there and Pence was there. And and then Don, Don King got up and said the worst things after. But your speech was amazing. It just went down. So, so, like it's, in so it's interesting because a lot of people bring that up. They play it a lot on television as B-roll. And I, I, I give the same answer each and every time. I knew the man that was going to be getting up and addressing this church. And I knew all the things that the press had called Trump accurately, mm -hmm. but number one, it would not be favorable to a campaign. And two, my whole goal was to sort of repaint the painting, which was Donald Trump. I turned around and I remember saying, you know, here's what the press has called Trump. He's a sexist, he's a misogynist, he's a homophobe, a xenophobe, Islamophobe, an anti-Semite, right? Um, a, a racist, etc. He is all of those things, but I didn't want the world to see him that way, right? Because right. the way I felt for him, and I knew that they were all true, so what do you do? You try to spin it. 
And that's what we did at the Trump Org. Mm -hmm. We would spin everything. And I wanted the people to see him as, oh, no, this isn't who Donald Trump is. This is what the media is trying to portray him. In essence, I wanted to whitewash the painting and be able to repaint something better. And you were actually helpful for me in, um, you know, in, some, of these, in, in some of these attempts to whitewash the painting. And um, you've seen Donald Trump at his absolute worst both outside of the White House and inside the White House. So going back to my original question, you know, when you joined in 2016, do you think that he was trying to use you as a way of silencing the critics who were making claims that he's a racist? And I do want to just bring something up. You will remember that when I was pushing you to go to Washington and to be a part of it, there was nobody of color, right? There was nobody of color. It was actually, there weren't even really any, any women it was, it was all a bunch of white men. So your answer on that. I think that very much like you, we were all kind of hunkered down, hoping that Donald Trump could win. Um, Donald Trump uses everyone. I, I don't think that I'm unique in the equation. I think that he exploited you. I think that he's exploited the evangelicals. I think he's exploited uh, black Christians and, and, and supporters. He uses everyone. And everything is so transactional for him. So I'm not going to personalize this. I knew Donald Trump long before the campaign. And so when I had that opportunity, you know, thanks to you and others to serve in that way, then yes. But I'm not going to say that he said and said, I'm just going to uniquely just use her. The truth of the matter is I had one of the most unique relationships as an African-American woman, because as you stated, there were, there were no other options. Um, for people to serve. And so um, in some ways, I guess I played myself more than <laughs> you used me. I mean, just not seeing the things that are so clear now, um, back then really was the biggest factor as to how I became a part of that craziness. So I've called Donald Trump a racist. I've, did, I've done it on television. I've done it on radio. I've done it before the House Oversight Committee, before I don't even know how many tens of millions of people. You think Donald Trump is a racist? Uh, unequivocally, yes. But everybody wants to know how, you know, I didn't see it before or why you didn't say anything. And so we have to answer that question. If we've come to that conclusion now, why just now? And, you know, like I said, during The Apprentice, I had no idea of what was going on behind the scenes. Um, but now I know I've had an opportunity to come to know who Donald Trump is as a person, what he feels and believes in his heart. And Donald Trump is a racist. So let me ask you this question. So you were successful in obtaining a position uh, in the White House. And obviously, and I'm very well aware of this because you were good enough to take care of my daughter when she was there working for the uh, first lady. Tell me. You, like me, had made a series of tapes. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think from certain reports that you've had over 200-plus tapes. I, on the other hand, despite the people making allegations that I ha everyone that walked into my office was recorded, I think I have about 50 tapes, give or take, over a 10-year period. But you, the, the claim is that you had or have over 200 tapes. Do me a favor and describe for the listeners the process in which you made many of these tapes. <laughs> Um, you know, because you've talked to my attorney that I, well, I know, but I want everybody that. that's listening to understand. <laughs> There's a reason why people, you know, my counsel, just so you know, <laughs> attorney Cohen. Now there's a reason why people tape Donald Trump. What was, well, you know, what, what made you decide to do that? Well, you know, I have to tell you early on, um, 
Donald started contradicting himself. Like he would in the morning say one thing, by the afternoon he had said something else. And then you would stand there in front of other people and Donald would say, I never said that. You know, he'd say, oh, go fix this or go do this. And then you go down and you do it. And then in front of everyone else, he'd say, I never told her that. She did that on her own. Um, and it started to happen so frequently that you kind of get to the point where you're like, either something is going on or I'm, you know, I'm losing it. And so a lot of that catalyst was just Donald Trump um, would just often lie so much <laughs> and so easily that, um, you know, in some ways you had to make sure that, um, particularly in things that were, you know, legal or not legal, that you kind of protected yourself. So it really was a bit of protection. I never thought that I would ever have to share them. Some of it was, most of it was for my own election, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, you know this. Donald Trump said he that you weren't really his lawyer, or you were low level. Or yeah, I was. A, I was allegedly a low level PR guy. Yeah, and you know, I I, I really wasn't a lawyer. Hey, it's just not true. You know, you know it's not true. I, I know it's not true. And then you know, you're kind of forced to you know defend yourself, and so um, that's kind of where I am. But um, I just want to talk a little bit about the lawsuits. You know, the reason that. Donald Trump, you know, had the Justice Department sue me. The reason that we're in the middle of this arbitration right now is because Donald Trump does not want the truth to come out. And as I shared in my book, Unhinged, you know, there's so much more to tell, but he has strategically used the legal system to shut down his critics. And you know it better than anyone else because he locked you up in order to keep you from having your book come out. Donald Trump will stop at nothing to keep you know, the people who are opposed to him from telling the truth. There is no end to Donald Trump's need to win at all costs, including violating the Constitution, using mm -hmm. the likes of Bill Barr, his new enforcer, or drunken Rudy Giuliani, you know, getting out there, making up all sorts of lies, like a madman, you know, on, on television, yeah. spewing one lie after the other. But they don't care because they're only playing to a party of one. And that's really all that they care about is how will Donald look at what I've just said and will it benefit me in the long run? And you have the same with Lindsey Graham's of there, Ted Cruz, Mark mm -hmm. Meadows, Jim Jordan, all of them. They're all willing to just sacrifice their, their reputations and their honor all for one individual. You know, speaking of which, so you brought up your book, Unhinged. I actually read it while I was in prison. You know, tell me something. What was your favorite part of your book? I'm going to tell you quickly mine. So my favorite part of my book was actually when um, I talk about the polls and how Trump's ego was so deflated by being 187 or 189 out of 200 and that he needed to be at the top of the polls and that I should do whatever I could in order to obviously yeah. bring him to what he first wanted was the number one spot. But we ended up settling on the number nine because it would have been ridiculous to see him go from this close to bottom <laughs> all the way to the top. What was your favorite part of your book? Uh, my favorite part of my book was talking about my family because often people want to start my story in the boardroom on The Apprentice and think that that's just kind of where my life began. But my life began in Westlake Projects, Youngstown, Ohio, you know, with my family. This is before my father um, was killed. And so I think it was important to tell people the, the story about my life and to share some of the obstacles I overcame to end up working for two U.S. presidents and serving my country in the ways that I did and being in some of the most unique places 
um, that you could ever imagine. And I, I believe that the readers responded well to that. I think that that's why I was able to stay, you know, at the number one spot for two consecutive weeks and stay on the le- stay on the list for so long because people were very interested in my story that was broader than just talking about my time with Donald. Well, I can tell you that your book was widely read by many of the inmates at Otisville, so <laughs> you should take some <laughs> consolation in that. Let me ask you a question. Um, while you were doing any of the tapes, you know, I know we've talked about this, Trump's usage of the N-word. Have you ever heard him say it? He's never said it in front of me. Yeah, he's never no. said it in front of he me either. He never came out and used the word, the N-word in front of right. me. But to listen to his niece talk about how he just so freely used it and dropped the N-word around their homestead, around her family, it was just, it was just completely disturbing. I mean, it's just... It's yeah, disturbing. I felt the exact same way when I was reading that as well, because, I mean, I was around him for more than a decade, and I don't recall him ever using the n-word i mean he said racist things you don't have to use the n-word in order to say things that are racist right that's really what and i describe trump as an archie bunker racist you don't have to use the n-word to to behave like a racist but we know by the extent that mark burnett and uh, you know mgm now and, and the folks who actually own the rights to the apprentice that they have guarded those tapes, those outtakes with their lives. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if there's nothing to hide, then show them. And, you know, to have so many of the producers and sound guys and, and folks that worked on production to confirm that he in fact said those things. I mean, and they just continue to protect him. It's just pretty sad. Yeah, I agree. So one of the tapes that actually got played on television quite a bit is Laura Trump offering you, I think it was about $15,000 a month as a job um, with the RNC for the 2020 campaign in return for, what was it, uh, uh, an NDA silencing you from saying anything negative about Trump? It sounds a little like, obviously, that there's some things that the back pocket to pull out. Clearly, if, if you come over as a campaign, like, we can't have, we gotta Oh, everything. God, no. Everybody's positive, right? Go, go through that with me, if you would. Do you think they were trying to buy your silence? I mean, it's an obvious question. Yeah, you know, when I, uh, when I left the, the White House, I did a couple of interviews, and I made it very clear that I had observed things that were very disturbing, and that I was very interested in sharing those things. And very shortly after those interviews was when uh, Laura called me to try to, in fact, buy my silence. Um, whatever it was that she thought I was going to share, you know, it 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 disturbed her enough to call me and to make that offer of, um, and she was explicit, you know, we will pay you this money, but you know, you can't be saying those things, those bad things. And she, she, you know, she, in her, her way of communicating, she was kind of all over the place. You could tell somebody had kind of given her talkers and coached her, but she was just, and you can't say those things. And you, it sounds like you have something in your back pocket. I mean, I, did Laura know that you had additional tapes? Oh no. <laughs> Otherwise, she wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear. I I have Laura bad mouthing Ivanka. I have Laura bad mouthing Donald. I have Laura bad mouthing Melania. I mean, Laura probably the reason why Laura doesn't say much about me is because if she recalls all the conversations we had, particularly when we were on the the bus for the women for Trump bus, you know, we were on that bus and we were going around, she would say some things that I think the family would be quite interested in. Lynn Patton was on that bus too with you. 
another person that I had brought not only into the Trump organization, but into the National Diversity Coalition. And then, you know, you, know, you guys formed your own sort of subcommittee right there, uh, the Women for Trump, that you started going around the country and speaking on behalf because of all of yeah, these sexist Yeah, my Lynn Patton folks. tapes. <laughs> my Lynn Patton tapes, <laughs> especially when she was drunk. Ooh. <laughs> Tell me something. How did you feel when you saw Mark Meadows parade her out in front of the House Oversight Committee in order to dispel the statements that I had made about Trump being a racist? I, it was very sad to see her used that way. It was also very bizarre um, that they would kind of use her as a prop, but particularly to attack you, uh, the person who was responsible for her being there in the administration, as well as in the Trump um, organization. And I don't know that a lot of your listeners know that you were key to her being hired at the organization and the reason that she is currently serving in her position at HUD now. So for him to parade her out and to use her as a weapon against you, uh, it, it was just, it was embarrassing too. What did Laura say about Ivanka? I'm curious. <laughs> That's, I'm saving that for unhinged too. <laughs> Like, give us a give us a but, little taste. Uh, <laughs> what was what was the gen, what, generally what was it what was it that she was saying? Because a lot of people used to talk behind each other's backs. Well, but yeah, some of the things she revealed, you know, like I said, I'll save it for Unhinged too. But but particularly, she would make fun of Ivanka's face, fake voice. You know, the voice that she takes. My father would like the country to know that he cares about <laughs> you. We all know that she doesn't talk like that, and so Laura would do this. Ivanka impression that would crack you up and then she would stop and then do the Ivanka cursing impression man she would have me in stitches it would be so funny because it was so spot on because as you know you know Ivanka doesn't talk like that she doesn't talk like my father that's just not how she talks <laughs> right it's pretty hilarious it sure is If you love the detailed stories told here on Mea Culpa, then you'll love The Orange Tree. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 murder in a student neighborhood near the University of Texas at Austin that rocked the city and the campus community. 21-year-old Jennifer Cave was shot, dismembered, and found in a bathtub in her friend Colton Pitanyak's apartment. This podcast includes court audio, interrogation audio, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both perpetrators and the victim's family. The show was reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tinu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started the project. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. So question for you in the same in the same sort of genre. Right. So Trump claims that he's done more for African-Americans than any other president since Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> What's the real truth behind the views regarding race by Trump? <laughs> um, well, I know his record so intimately because I was um, key to building that record in that first year, particularly in the first 100 days. And Donald Trump could care less about the African-American community. I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. He cares more about his tea time <laughs> than he cares about African-Americans, his golf game. 
he cares more about than African Americans. Um, but it, particularly when we, when I would go to him and say, you know, for instance, with the historically black colleges and universities, the funding, and I would say, this is so critically important, and we need to increase the funding. And I tried your strategy. You know, Obama only funded them at this level, and we should increase it by this or that. And he would be like, well, hell, if the black president, you know, only funded them at that level, why should I go above and beyond? And then trying to explain that to him. Um, he, he has not done more. And, and it's, it's almost insulting and ridiculous to even try to counter that statement because he has fallen short on so many different levels. But I think the most important measure of his success with African-Americans is on racial tension in this country. I mean, to see the riots day after day, to see the cities exploding with division because directly because of the tone that Donald Trump has set in this country, um, he should never ever utter those words that he's done more for us because we feel more oppressed now than ever before and, and hopeless because the president of the United States uh, wants to start a race war. And I actually wrote that back in in Unhinged. You, you did. And let's also not forget about the people that are around him that do it as well. I mean, take Mike Caputo for a second. The guy is a raving lunatic, thrown off not just the 2011, but the 2015 campaign for saying stupid shit during that as well. I mean, just an absolute lunatic who's willing to to say anything in order to get back into Trump's good graces. So, I mean, you know what he just said now, right? Which is, if Trump loses, everybody buy bullets, buy more more weapons and so on, and we're going to have to go on a tear because, I mean, this is this is what Trump wants wants to hear. So like Lewandowski and, and so many others, like Mike Caputo, they're playing to a party of one, like the Lindsey Grahams. Mm -hmm. and, and uh, I mean, they're all playing... Mm -hmm. Could you imagine Mitch McConnell playing to a party of one to Trump? I mean, it's even in light of Ruth Ginsburg's death the other day, now that they're going to play into this sort of craziness, you know that he's 100% on Monday or Tuesday going to look at his Heritage Foundation list because he doesn't know a freaking name on that list. That list was given to him when we were sitting in his office, and there's just 100 names onto it, and all he does is check down the next box, the next box. Nobody's yep. giving him any research because Trump doesn't read. So he's just going down the line, going down the line, going down the line, and he's like, oh, I know them very well. They're, they're very prestigious people. They're very prestigious people. You know, one of these days he's going to turn around and you have one of these names like Casey. You don't know if it's a male or a female name. And it's going to be a, a female and he's going to think it's a male because he doesn't know yeah. what the hell he's talking about. He's just reading off of, a, off of a list. And all he wants to do, of course, is to appease this evangelical base. And I, I'm, I'm very I'm concerned about that one. Speaking about Donald Trump's cognitive decline. I mean, you've known him like I have for well over a decade. I've been very vocal and saying it reminds me of the movie Young Frankenstein. When I watch him on television, it's like the nonsensical rantings of a lunatic mind. How do you see his decline in his cognitive behavior? I was so alarmed by it that I remember pulling Ivanka over in the West Wing and saying, your father has called me over to the Oval Office four times. And every time I get over there, he can't remember why he called me over there. Like I would point out to her the moments that were so alarming because 
he just sometimes wouldn't even remember where he was. So he'd be in the middle of doing something and completely forget it. Um, now we could attribute that to just old age or something cognitive that's going on. You mentioned that he doesn't read. Even when he read documents, I wasn't certain that he comprehended the things that he read. And they, some of these things were quite significant. They changed his briefing book. The, the briefing books when I was in the Clinton administration were this thick and Donald's are now just kind of like this because they know that he is not able to digest all of that information. I remember Donald Trump being so sharp in the boardroom in The Apprentice in 2003, 2004. I remember it so very clearly. And I was able to compare that sharp mind to the, 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 the jello mind of the president of the United States right now. He is in complete decline. And I rung the alarm, you know, two years ago in Unhinged. And people were like, oh, she's being dramatic or, you know, trying to get everybody riled up. But now people are able to see it with his inability to pick up a cup, his inability to go down a ramp, his, you know, he, he, all of the, his repeating himself, his, it, it has been very hard to imagine that Donald Trump is in control of the nuclear codes and able to make decisions because I don't believe that from a cognitive standpoint or a neurological standpoint that he has the capacity to do that in a responsible way. When you were in the White House, did you ever see Trump make a unwanted sexual advance on anybody at the at the White House? Or let's even go back to the two different uh, series of uh, the first and the seventh um, of The Apprentice. Did you ever see him make unwanted sexual advances towards anyone? I saw it all the time on the set of The Apprentice, right? This is before Me Too. So Donald Trump leering at a beautiful woman or saying inappropriate comments to the female contestants on the show was not uncommon. And we saw that so often. But again, that's before the awareness of Me Too because he would say those things and it was his fiefdom and nobody really reacted. And a lot of the contestants after said at the time that it was very uncomfortable, but you know, during the time, it was kind of par for the course with him. Um, in the White House, however, um, he he was very measured in the very beginning, although um, he didn't have a problem insulting women and talking about women's looks. When you think about the stuff that he said about Mika or um, Megyn Kelly and all those other things, those sexist remarks he had no problems with. But from a sexual standpoint, I didn't see him making sexual advances at women. Um, the other opposite end of that spectrum was the insults um, and the misogyny that he directed towards women. Everybody knows, you know, his his um, behavior. And I think there's now, what, 20 lawsuits pending against him from people who are claiming. I know, and they keep and they keep moving forward, too. Like you think that some of these cases would just shut down, but the, uh, the, the judicial system is kind of moving it along. And I wonder if any of them will uh, result in anything. Well, who, who knows? But let me ask you, you've said that you were haunted by his tweets on a daily basis. Like, I was haunted by tweets every single day. Like, what is he going to tweet next? Does anybody say to him, what are you doing? I, mean, I tried to be that person, and then all of the people around him attacked me. How did they affect you? Because I know how they affected me. I know how they affected my wife. And I thank you for the kind words you said about her. Not only did he go after my wife, um, and, but he went after my father-in-law as well. 
making all sorts of allegations about him. My father-in-law is a, is, a, is a retired individual that was in the garment district. I mean, he made him into, into a gangster simply because they were born in the former Soviet Union. I mean, the, he doesn't understand the power. I don't know if it's, it's got to be intentional because he can't be that stupid not to understand that when you have 60 million people that are following you, and mm-hmm. again, and, and I'll go one step further here, he thinks all 60 million are fans. They're not. A lot of the people just want to see what it is so that they can interact and they can say many of the negative things that they say about him uh, on, in this social media world, in this Twitter sphere. But he doesn't realize the level of the damage that one man can cause with just a single tweet. And you were on that opposite side of his Twitter, right? Because he's a texting tough guy. Mm. So, you know, yeah. how did that affect you? Because I know for me, it caused a whole world of havoc. It caused a whole world of havoc for my wife and then for my father-in-law. So tell us, what, what, what happened with you? You know, when you think about the power of that platform, and like you said, when he sends out a tweet, you know, calling you names, insulting you, directing his followers to attack you, the impact on your life is, is just so tremendous. No, you can't go anywhere without someone mentioning those horrible words that he said about you, the emotional toll that it takes on you when the president of the United States is attacking you, attacking your character, um, calling you names, insulting you, uh, demeaning you and your family. It is just, I mean, it is terrible. And I've had to live through those attacks for the last three years. And I think that no American should be on the receiving end of those types of attacks, those bullying, intimidation tactics by the president of the United States. And the problem is it's not just him. It's the people who now listen to, or they read these tweets. You know, my father-in-law is an example. The bank that he's been with for 20 years closed out his bank account simply because of that tweet. He walked in. He says, what are you talking about? I've been with the bank for 20 years. It's his checking account. They were like, well, you're too high public profile, and the bank has the right to close out your account, so you have 30 days within wow. which to change it. And um, it's, it's really it's, it's disgusting. You know, you brought up Jared and Ivanka um, with Laura and making fun, and obviously, you know, you worked in the same area that Jared and Ivanka do. Um, how do you think that they influence the president? Um, how do you think that their service um, to influence the president is going? Let me just take them individually. I thought that when Ivanka joined the administration that she would have a positive impact on her father. I thought that she would be able to kind of be a calming force for him and stop him from his worst impulses. Well, I was wrong. I mean, she has no influence over him. And um, at times he was very frustrated that she was even there. Uh, In terms of Jared, however, that's a whole different story. I mean, the power that Jared uh, yields in the West Wing is on another level. I mean, he really, if you tell, if you ask me who's the most influential person in the West Wing, I would have to reluctantly admit to you that it is Jared. Um, Jared is running his own kind of shadow government in the White House. And Donald doesn't even know half the things that Jared is carrying out in the administration he's clueless to. 
And so the two of them are kind of different. You know, Ivanka had her agenda. She has failed on every level at every element of her agenda. But Jared, on the other hand, everything that he has wanted to carry out, everything that he's wanted to do, he has done with very little oversight from the president. And he answers to no Well, one. actually, it's not just oversight. He's accomplished nothing. I mean, if you can, tell me one thing that he's accomplished. Okay, a lot of people will say, oh, well, they moved well, the he embassy. Well, he did move the embassy. Okay, well, that's, uh, look, embassy. we all know what... You have what to the, give him credit, Michael. He didn't move it for any legitimate reason. They moved it because Sheldon Adelson was offering a ton of money to the RNC, and he wanted to see the embassy moved to uh, Jerusalem, you know, before he dies. I mean, that's, that's just, the, that's the truth uh, on, on that. But what happened to prison reform with Jared? Where, where is prison reform in this? Where he, I mean, Jared, known as the secretary of everything. What has he actually accomplished? Oh, my gosh. Now you have Bahrain and you have the United Arab Emirates. Now they're all they're, they're going to treat Israel with some decency and respect. I, I honestly, I can't. I don't even know. I've tried to read onto it, but I'm not really sure. OK, great. You can fly into Bahrain from Israel now. That's great. That's, that's great. But where's the benefit well, a lot of these were Jared's own pet and passion projects um, while he's also enriching himself. And I think that there's going to be a extensive investigation into Jared's activities as well as the rest of the family's activities. But um, I think that Jared Kushner still, whether he's accomplished or not, has been doing things that we all won't realize until this administration is over, taking care of his folks getting financial gain and deals done while utilizing the government as his playground. You're referring to probably 666 Fifth Avenue, correct? Yes, yeah, I am. Yeah, I, I, bet, <laughs> I bet you are. So Amorosa, in September of 2016, you said in an interview with Frontline. Every critic, every detractor will have to bow down to President Trump. It's everyone who's ever doubted Donald, whoever disagreed, whoever challenged him. It is the ultimate revenge to become the most powerful man in the universe. When I read that, it reminded me very much of what I was doing, right? We're playing to a party of one. It's all about his mm -hmm. ego building. It's this insatiable, his appetite is only surpassed by his need to feed his ego. Is that the same reason why you made that statement? Uh, well, first of all, it was a stupid statement. So let me just own it. It was dumb. I've made, um, I've made more stupid statements to... than you, Amarosa. So, you know. <laughs> I was responding to an, an interviewer who kind of, you know, hyped me up and was asking, oh, what do you think his critics will have to do when he becomes president? And I responded to it. And it was dumb. Uh, but... You know, I was playing to the only person in that organization that mattered in the, the Trump campaign that mattered, which was Donald Trump. And Donald Trump required that hyperbole, you know, that huge kind of these big grand statements and uh, the ominous kind of threats about, oh, everybody will have to bow down. I probably could have stated that in a much more eloquent way. But like I said, it was stupid. And so, you know, we're seeing, though, that. The underlying message of that is really what is in Donald Trump's psyche, that he wants everyone at some point to worship him and to be a part of this tremendous cult that he has, this cult of personality, and to follow him. And um, he wants to be dear leader, unfortunately. And he is trying to carry that out. So it was a little prescient. Right. So you, you'll remember this. I remember um, 
that all of a sudden there were a whole group of different individuals that were coming to meet with Trump, especially when he became the president-elect. And I came up with this line okay. uh, earlier than that about how they're all coming to kiss the ring, right? Which is, of yeah. course, a takeoff of the Godfather and so on. He loved that statement so much that he ensured that I used it in interview after interview after interview. It, <laughs> and I'll never forget because I got a piece of paper from him that was the um, interview that I had done. And he circled it as he always does with his black Sharpie. And he goes, Sharpie. great. <laughs> he, <laughs> and he goes, great line, use it. And he put a big D next to it. And then, of course, he calls me in in order to, to talk about it. And it's this desperate need. I don't know if, if one could fill his ego. I, I just, I don't know whether or not that it's even possible. Um, no, not a, not somebody who is a malignant narcissist like Donald Trump. It, there's no possible way that he could ever get the assurance that he needs, the adoration that he needs to kind of comfort his fragile ego. And so he will continue to do things to kind of elicit responses from people until he feels that they love him or they worship him or they, you know, or they um, adore him. You know, one of the events I'm that Trump had so much disdain for, of course, was when Obama was in Germany and had that massive reception from the, you know, from the German oh, people. Yeah. Uh, that really bothered him a lot. And I'll tell you, interestingly enough, what Trump really did like was the way that the people of North Korea go crazy when Kim Jong-un walks past them or he's standing there where they kick their leg up to a perfect 90 degree and that when he says something, they start clapping their hands and they're screaming and yelling from They clap their hands so hard that some of the people end up at the OR with fractured hands. I mean, he wants that same adulation. And I just, I, I'll be honest with you, um, so many of us gave it to him. And as I always say, Donald Trump is like First Avenue here in New York. He's one way. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't reciprocate. It's all about you feeding his ego and him just accepting it. And deciding whether or not the way that you're feeding his ego is actually good enough. Well, I have to say that there were a couple of incidents, um, particularly in the White House, that stand out when you talk about that. We were on Air Force One flying, and he was watching the television, and they were tracking his plane landing into Andrews. And he made us all kind of gather around the television and watch us landing on the television while he was watching it and he thought look look at you they're tracking us while we're on i mean it was just for him it was such a big deal and he made us stand there as we're descending we're supposed to be in our seats with our seatbelts on he made us watch as they were commenting about him returning from his trip and he criticized and he critiqued the 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 um anchor who was talking about it or giving feedback about it and i just remember moments like that that just reminded me of just how you know, fragile of an ego this guy has, where he made his staff stop what they were doing to watch them talk about him on the television as we're landing into Andrews. Yeah, we used to have that a lot also when we used to fly into places and the people would be uh, in the hangars and waiting and you know anxious and with the signs and the placards going. And um, yeah. he would tell the captain, you know, no, 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 just wait. Just wait. 
Let them, let, let them, you know, let them wait for us. We don't have to be so fast to, to walk out. So just to let people decide that, um, you know, they wanted him <laughs> even more. Just build up the suspense. So Amorosa, I got um, just another question for you. So you once said that Trump has an enemies list of Republicans that voted against him. Who's on that list? Oh, man, the list was so long at the time that I made that statement. Um, <laughs> that statement was made in the fall of, of 2016. And Donald wanted us, if, if somebody rejected us or somebody uh, said something bad, he wanted us to make sure we made note of it. Um, I remember we went to North Carolina and one of the local electeds refused to put Donald Trump's photos in the victory office. He wanted, they wanted to make sure that they were down because they thought that it was in, would impact the down ballot candidates. And I mentioned that story to him. And he's like, what's the guy's name? Give me the guy's name. And I'm sure I can't even remember the guy's name now, but I'm sure that guy is still on. Donald's enemies list. Of course, all of those primary candidates who are now kissing his butt when he was in the primary for the to be candidate, um, the nominee for the uh, to be the Republican nominee. Now we see that they've all kind of come around, bowed down to him and kissed the ring. And um, particularly Ted Cruz, who was at the top of his list in his enemies list, has now just become one of his most fervent followers. Obviously, Lindsey Graham as well. And let's not forget, yeah. let's not forget all the the beautiful things Lindsay said about him, you know, early on. I mean, he's a, he called him a clown. Yeah. He called him a, a carnival barker and a clown. And I list all of those kind of personalities in Unhinged, and I kind of go through how he kind of, t- his take on them, uh, because oftentimes what he says publicly is very different than what he says privately. Right, so you'll remember also in my book, in Disloyal, I talk about the same, the same thing. I talk about how we systematically, using the National Enquirer and David Pecker, how we systematically took each and every one of these Republican candidates apart using the media in, mm-hmm. you know, in just terrible ways. I mean, I remember sitting with Trump and we talked about the picture of Ted Cruz's father with Lee Harvey Oswald Ooh. and making the allegation that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of Kennedy. <laughs> and when, when we talked about it, you know, Trump was like, you know, there's no way in the world that he's going to be able to fight this. Because if he says yes, that it happened, that's obviously, that's, that's a killer, right? That's a killer shot, right? But if he doesn't mm-hmm. respond to it, it's just as good. Because now silence, Trump is going to claim, means that Cruz has something to, right, has something to hide. So we had it either way. And if he did respond to it, how is he going to respond, Right. I'm, I'm not going to give any credence to that. It's not worth, it's not worth my time. So no matter, no matter what we said, there was no way in the world for Ted Cruz to come back from something like that. And then to watch Ted Cruz kiss Trump's ass, right, on, on television in order for what? After Trump insulted his wife. Could you imagine? I mean, it's just like, how, right? how could you even think about being around this man who insulted your wife. Well, look at what he did to it's me with my, with my daughter, Samantha, who you know so well, right? And you were so kind yeah, to her in I D.C. Um, I mean, you know, some of us really should have just turned around and put our sycophantic beliefs to the side and just give him a good solid slap across the side of his head because, you know, the, the statements he made about Ted Cruz's wife, the things he said about my, my daughter, and the things he said about so many other women, right? It's just, um, it's inexcusable. Including me. Yes, including you. <laughs> What's the worst thing? What's the worst thing you remember him saying about you? I, I think the worst thing is this idea that I was unethical, you know, 
trying to make it seem like I, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't even pay attention to the name calling because he's he calls everyone low IQ and this and that. But, well, remember uh, something. Remember, and I talk, I, I, I talk about this. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you know, Donald Trump is the world's mm-hmm. greatest deflector. I talked about that on Bill Maher the yeah. other night. He deflects. So if he calls you low IQ Amorosa, it's because he himself, knowing that he has a low IQ, needs in order to project and to deflect on somebody else in order to try to make himself seem bigger and better than actually what he is. Mm-hmm. His whole life is a fucking facade, right? And yet, yeah. somehow or another, people like you and me and others managed to convince the American people that he wasn't this great danger to American democracy. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of this is... is my fault. You know, I pushed him into the, into the race in 2011. I pushed him in again in 2015. And now I'm watching as the United States of America is just falling apart. And we're changing in terms of, you know, what we are and who we are as a people. But I will tell you one thing that I've seen as a result of the book and a result of television and this podcast. The thing that I've seen is people aren't going to allow it to happen. You know, and that's why I say at the end of the book, mm-hmm. I want you now to take the information that I gave to you, and I want you to use that as a decision-making tool for who you want to be the president in this 2020 election. What was the reason you actually did Unhinged? What was the, what was the reasoning behind it? Uh, the big reason behind writing Unhinged was because everybody had uh, Omarosa's story. Everyone was saying, this is what Omarosa did or didn't do. This was Omarosa's role. And I thought it was important to not allow other people to tell my story, that I needed to tell my own story and to share my own truth as it relates to Donald Trump's rise to become president of the United States. And that was important to me because there was just so many kind of false statements and lies and allegations that the only way for me to get that story out in the way that it actually happened was for me to write on him. Well, Amorosa, let me say, I've known you now for a long time, a long, long time. And I can tell you, (laughs) I think you're wonderful. I think you're smart. I think you're fantastic. I think your not being in Washington was a great loss to this fucked up administration that we have there now. You were one of the few people that actually would tell him the truth. And I want to thank you for coming on Mea Culpa. And, you know, you're great. I love you. And um, I hope to see you when you're in New York. Thank you, Michael. All righty. All right. Love love to the family. Thanks. Oh, the same. Be well. Let's go now to my Twitter feed, where on each episode, I'll be reading some of your questions and comments. And the tweet from this week is coming from Bette Midler. Yes, Bette Midler. She's responding to ABC News Politics, where it says, New York Attorney General's Office seeks to compel testimony from Eric Trump as part of an investigation into whether the Trump Organization improperly inflated certain assets to obtain tax benefits. Bette Midler, at Bette Midler, states, good luck. He won't show and won't be penalized. And if you want to know about inflating assets, read the remarkable book by hashtag Michael Cohen, hashtag disloyal. It explains everything. Well, it sure does. And Eric is becoming a chip off the old block. Eric thinks he's his father. He thinks he's above the law, that he doesn't have to be responsible, whether it's to the attorney general's office requiring depositions, or even myself in the lawsuit that I have against the Trump organization for a return of all the money I spent in legal fees on their behalf. 
Well, Eric, let me tell you something. You do have to be involved, and you do have to take responsibility, and you will have to sit for the depositions, as determined by the judge, and probably by the judge in my case as well. The only difference is you're actually not as smart as you think you are, and the beautiful thing is going to be when you give those depositions, Eric, when you lie, and you most certainly will lie, you're going to be held for perjury, and you're going to be held accountable, just as I was. And I hope you actually get to go to Otisville. You should give me a call. I can introduce you to a couple people that are still there. I wrote in a tweet. On February 27th of 2019, before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, I stated, Given my experience working for at real Donald Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, there will never be a peaceful transition of power. Well, I can't tell you the number of likes and retweets and quotes that I got. It's to the thousands. But one gentleman responds, Well, of course President Kim Trump will not give up his new family business. Why would he, with no opposition from the Republicans? He can act out his fantasy as King of the United States. The president is also clever enough to understand that he is facing a genocide charge. And the response is coming from Kevin Stokes at K.E. Binball. You're right, Kevin, and it's something that we've talked about during this entire episode. Donald Trump thinks that he's going to be an autocrat. He's going to be a dictator here in the United States. And everybody keeps asking me on Twitter, well, you know him so well. What can you do? What can we do? Well, let me tell you, the one thing you could certainly do is get out and vote. I don't know how many times I can say the same thing. If you don't get out and vote, you have no right to complain. You need to not only vote yourself, you need to make sure that your brother, your sister, your neighbors, your cousins, your friends, anybody that you know gets out there and votes. And you have to vote with your conscience. You have to vote with what's right for America. And it's my opinion that Donald Trump is not right for America. That we need someone that's going to bring the country back together because today we are more divisive than we have ever been before. And I fear for the future of this country. 19 months ago, I said it. And I said it loudly and clearly. Take the visine out of your eyes and understand that Donald J. Trump cares for no one or anything other than himself. He knows what he wants. He wants to be an autocrat. And we need to do everything we can in order to stop him. Thanks for your question. And now, today's mea culpa. As I write these words, protests have erupted all across America in response to the grand jury decision in Louisville, Kentucky, not to indict any of the three police officers responsible for the shooting death of Breonna Taylor. Our investigation found that Mattingly and Cosgrove were justified in their use of force. Breaking now at 11, outrage spilling into the streets. Fire set, two police officers shot as protesters in Louisville and around the country unleash their anger. The president was quick to praise the decision and Cameron himself for the handling of the case. Really brilliant uh, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron is doing a fantastic job. I think he's a star. In my mind, though, Louisville has become a petri dish for our national reckoning with race and how Donald J. Trump looks at the issue. For him, it is simply an opportunity to exacerbate division. The president has made clear that what we are seeing on America's streets is unacceptable. Violence, looting, anarchy, 
Lawlessness are not to be tolerated. Predictably, outrage swiftly followed the Taylor decision, and once again, the streets are inflamed with anger and violence, allowing the president to cast the blame upon his favorite new band of boogeymen. The violence and vandalism is being led by Antifa and other radical left-wing groups. He wants you to think that on every urban street corner lurks Antifa, that the looters and anarchists are coming to invade your neighborhood. He wants there to be violence and chaos. And in Louisville, with justice deferred for Breonna Taylor, he's got what he wanted, and he will continue to pour gas on the flames. If Biden wins, the mob wins. If Biden wins, the rioters, anarchists, arsonists, and flag burners win. What we are seeing now is the weaponization of his racism and its deployment across the country in service of his desperate and increasingly divisive campaign for re-election. First though, I must acknowledge my own complicity in all of this. In Disloyal, I dedicate a chapter to his racist birther campaign against President Obama, which was the spark that fueled his rise to the presidency. I want him to show his birth certificate. I want him to show his birth certificate. There's something on that birth certificate that he doesn't like. Oh my God. I brought it up just routinely, and all of a sudden, a lot of facts are emerging, and I'm starting to wonder myself whether or not he was born in this country. So I would like to have him show his birth certificate. And can I be honest with you? I hope he can. Because if he can't, if he can't, and if he wasn't born in this country, which is a real possibility, if he doesn't, it's one of the greatest scams in the history of politics. After first learning about this ridiculous conspiracy in Breitbart, or one of the many dubious outlets where he gets his so-called news, Trump found an issue that spoke to him, as well as millions of angry Americans who hated President Obama. Never mind that it was all bullshit. He knew that if he repeated the bogus charge enough, that it would soon become fact. This has become his go-to playbook. Just look at his current and frightening campaign to delegitimize mail and voting and in spinning of the vast conspiracy to undermine the sanctity of our entire election. We now face the possibility of a president who will refuse to abdicate his office and allow for the peaceful transfer of power. The man may be sick and deranged, desperately clinging to power by any means necessary, but he's in full command of his arsenal of dark powers and has a vast and loyal army of fellow travelers willing to spread his lies. His former spokesman for the CDC, Michael Caputo, gave voice to his true intentions during an unhinged Facebook video just last week. If you carry guns, buy ammunition, ladies and gentlemen, because it's going to be hard to get. And while it was a step too far for many in the administration, Trump is secretly celebrating its release. He knows that the more voices layered upon his own speak of insurrection, the more the lie will become the truth. I think back to my own moments on the phone with reporters, knowing what I was doing was wrong, but believing that what real harm could it actually do? The reporters lapping up this nonsense were hacks, desperate for a story. The people who believed what was being said were deranged fools. To me, it was simply a game in service of the boss. It would all stop once he moved on to his next charade. In my mind, he was simply playing the heel in a professional wrestling match. It is time for the battle of the billionaires. But looking back at it now, I realize that this is where it all started. I may have been playing the game, but Trump was deadly serious. And those hacks lapping up the story were becoming a legion of right-wing media outlets. 
It was the beginning of the infection and metastasized in short order. It's too late for me to roll back the tide of conspiracy and lies. Since those early days in 2012, they have become their own force. Some of them are actual assets of foreign powers like Russia, China, and Iran, seeking to sow discord and destabilize our nation. But the rest of it is a monster of our own creation and of Donald J. Trump's creation. The only way for it to stop is for him to lose. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer, Jared Gustad, and it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast, but to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now, and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd. It's so great to finally be able to get together again. Oh, it sure is. And I really appreciate you picking up the bill. I'm happy to. I've got the extra cash. Since we've all been driving so much more again, I've been using GetUpside, the free gas app that pays you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get paid cash when you buy gas with the GetUpside app? Yes, up to 25 cents a gallon. Cash back every time I buy gas. Does that actually add up to anything? Some months I make 200 to 300 bucks. Wow. That's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the free GetUpside app now. Download the free GetUpside app now in the App Store or Google Play to save up to 25 cents a gallon when you buy gas. Use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's up to 50 cents a gallon on your next fill-up. You can cash out anytime to PayPal or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code FILL. That Money Smith here reminded you, don't let family, friends, or business associates come into town, make you miss the big game. Treat them to an unforgettable Chargers game day experience at SoFi Stadium with a single game suite rental. Visit chargersuites.com to learn more about the suite experiences. The generative AI revolution is coming to your smartphone, and it's fueled by Micron Mobile Solutions. Generative AI applications use billions of parameters to translate your text into images. Micron Memory and Storage Solutions feed these parameters into generative AI models at light speed, turning your smartphone into a mobile creative workstation. See how Micron Innovation is accelerating AI innovation at micron.com forward slash AI.